coming tonight's sheer tonight's CD was dedicated by Jonathan Hamburger and this is in honor of his mother's fifth yard site coming up on Wednesday Tuesday night tomorrow night Rosh Chodesh Shvat Chanabas Moshe Allah and the Shama have a great aliyah to the greatest of heights may she channel lots of brachas and only 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 good things um, to you, begashmias in the material and in the spiritual, parnasa, good health, and only, only good things. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, so I'm a little bit far killed, and uh, that's a Yiddish way of saying under the weather. But I don't like to use the term under the weather because a Jew is not under anything. A Jew is under the Ebishter, under God. But let's see. Hopefully we're going to pull it through. We're going to pull it through with the Ebishter's help. Okay. So this week's parsha, we learn about the last three <coughs> plagues. And the Torah tells us the second to the last plague. In a sense, we can say that this plague is the last experience in exile. The, ne the next plague already broke the exile. And after that, you know, at, at the moment midnight struck and we had the plague of the firstborn, the Jewish people were instantly freed already. Because Paro right away came running and said, I free you. So in a sense, that plague is already the aftermath or breaks through into the aftermath of, of the exile is already what we might say the first experience of redemption. What's the last experience in, dark, in, in exile? The last experience in exile is the plague of darkness, which actually makes a lot of sense because exile is a darkness. So like the darkness comes to its like completion, the ninth plague. And after the plague is over, we're still in exile. So that time corresponds very, very much to the final moments of exile right before the Giyola. Now, as mentioned already in the, in the, in the uh, previous classes, it's hard for us to accurately define the time that we're in right now because we're living in very, very amazing times. We have already clear signs of the up-and-coming redemption, but yet there is still exile. So we're somewhere between Makas Choshech and Makas Bechores. We're like at, the, at that very, very final stage. 
so we can see what we can derive, inspiration and some deep teaching of how this applies to us. And that's what's so special about learning the Chumash now, learning these parshios. We can learn it with such delight and such, and such excitement because we're learning a story and we know the Torah's narration is, is boundless, it's timeless. So when the Torah tells us a story, it's not just talking about events that happened in the past, but ongoing events. And the going out of Mitzrayim is the precursor for the going out of the ultimate exile. So we can understand the story of redemption is the story of the current redemption as well. It's just that we have to be able to find it as it relates to us. So here's a teaching that does relate to us and could really, really excite us about the powerful opportunity that we have in the time that we're in right now. Okay, so the, med- the Medrash tells us, so let me first read the Pasuk. This is in Perek Yud, chapter 10, Pasuk Chafala, verse 21. Um, stretch out your hand over Egypt and it will be a darkness over the land of Egypt and the darkness will be able to be felt it will be such a thick darkness that you can actually feel the darkness Moshe tilts his hand over the heavens and suddenly it becomes an extreme darkness in the whole land of Egypt for three days no one can see their fellow. And they couldn't even move because the thickness of the darkness was so thick that people were actually paralyzed in their place. The Rashi tells us that these are two parts of the plague. There's the initial part of the plague where it was just dark, but the people were able to move about. Move about. The last three days of the plague, the darkness increased that it became actually um, a darkness that had a, that had a thickness to it. And they couldn't move. And then the, 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 the Pasa concludes, Yisrael, and to all the Jewish people, there was light in their settlements. Okay, so we're talking about darkness, a terrible, horrific darkness. What the Pasuk is telling us, to the Jewish people, it was light. That means the darkness didn't affect them. So the Medrash tells us, this is Medrash Rabbah, um, in... Parsha Yudalid, um, Perek Gimel, I mean, um, Sif Gimel, or Ois Gimel. It says like this. Um, and in the three days of darkness, Hashem cast the, the grace of the people onto the Egyptians that they loaned them all their vessels. Now, as the commentaries explain, it doesn't mean that it happened actually in the three days of darkness. In the three days of darkness, the Egyptians were immobile. They couldn't move. So they couldn't, at that time, give the Jewish people their valuables. We know that when the Jewish people left Egypt, we left and we emptied all the possessions of Mitzrayim. We took all the gold and silver. We took all the jewelry. We took everything out. And this was a reward for the hard labor. We've worked all the time. They owed it to us. They owed our missed wages. You have, you, have, you, have, you have a few million people that were working for over 210 years and never got paid. So to pay us for the work that we've done, the Egyptians had to pay. Now, they, wouldn't have, they would have never have paid it voluntarily. So God instructed us to trick the Egyptians. How did we do that? He instructed the Jewish people to ask them right before we left out of Mitzrayim, to left Egypt, that we should ask the Mitzrayim to please, since we're going to have a holiday, we're going to have a celebration for God, Initially, the Jewish people asked, Moshe asked Paro to let the Jewish people out only for three days. We will go celebrate, we will offer sacrifices, and then we're going to come back. But we have to look our best. 
if we're going to celebrate, it's a holiday for us, we should be dressed appropriately. So they asked the Egyptians to give them their jewel, the jewelry and the like, fine clothing. The Egyptians loaned it to them. And then later, the Jews never came back to Egypt, so it ended up being ours and it, and it was taken from Egypt. That's, that was the, the, the story, and that's how God filled his promise to Avram Avinu that the Jewish people will go out with Ruchush Gadol, with a tremendous wealth. Okay, so the Medrash says over here that on the three days of darkness, that's when God gave our kindness or our grace, chain, charm. The Egyptians suddenly felt very, very giving towards the Jewish people in these three days of darkness. But as we're going to see, it doesn't mean in these three days. What does it mean? These three days enable the Jewish people to get the wealth of Mitzrayim. Why? The Jewish people entered into the homes of the Egyptians. They saw silver, silver uh, uh, utensils and golden utensils, and garments. If later, so they and they marked down whatever they saw. They took stock. Basically, the Jewish people entered. Since the Egyptians were in the dark, not only they were in the dark, they were immobile. So the Jewish people were able to walk around freely throughout all the homes of the Egyptians. As they entered into their homes, they snooped around everywhere. And as they snooped around, they took stock of all the possessions that the Egyptians had. When the Egyptians later told them, when, they asked, when, when, when a woman asked her neighbor, can I please have some whatever, a necklace or whatever, and she says, I don't have, she says, what are you talking about I don't have? And the third draw, so on and so forth, is where I saw that you have a pearl necklace and then you have a diamond necklace. So, uh, so this is, they told them exactly what they have. If they say we don't have, it's in that and that place. At that time, so what was the grace or the charm? The Egyptians said, well, these Jewish people, they're honest people. Why are they honest people? Because they could have taken it, they could have emptied it, they could have robbed us completely because we, we were helpless. Couldn't call the police, everybody was stuck. They could have emptied, they could have ransacked, they could have looted all of Egypt. But they didn't do so. So now if they're telling us that we should loan it to them, they're going to bring it back, we can trust them. If they would have wanted to lie to us, they would have taken it in the time of the darkness. And we would have not even known, because they saw it already. Since they didn't take us, they didn't take anything, they didn't touch anything against our, our consent, they're not going to hold on to it. And they loaned them everything. Okay, fine. To fulfill that which it says in the Pasuk, that in the end they will go out with a great wealth. Now, listen closely. The Medr says, this is what it means when it says, that to all the Jewish people it was light in their settlements. The Medrash says, don't understand that to mean that in the Jewish homes back in Goshen, in their own neighborhoods, they had light. means It should have said, to the Jewish people in the land of Goshen, there was light. means we're in their settlements. What does it mean where they're settling? means everywhere they're walking. Every place that a Jew entered, so as a Jew entered into the house of the Egyptian, a blast of light, a burst of light came along with the Jew that the Egyptian didn't see. But the, the Jewish people had this powerful 
powerful light that, that came along with them into the dark homes of the Egyptians. And, um, and, and it showed them all the possessions. It even it had such a powerful light that it was some kind of an X-ray light. It was an X-ray light so they can see even things that were buried treasures. They were able to penetrate any kind. Nothing could was hidden. They basically got an absolute uh, 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 um, count of everything that was in the house because they had this powerful light that was able to go through any kind of wall or any kind of safe or whatever it was so they can see everything. And that's how the Medrash learns the meaning of a special light came along with the Jewish people wherever they went. This is the Midrash. The Medrash Tanchuma says very similar. I'm not going to quote the Medrash Tanchuma, but it's almost uh, much shorter. The same idea. That when the Jewish people during Makas Bechores, they were shown, they had a powerful light that went along with them, illuminating all the dark corners in the Egyptian homes, and they were able to see it, and that's how later they were able to get it. Rashi, when someone learns Rashi, um, it seems like Rashi also is just is following in the path of the Medrash. Rashi makes a similar statement. But under careful analysis, we will see that Rashi has a whole different approach. But let me tell you what Rashi says. Rashi says, um, Rashi asks a question. On Pasuk Chav Beis, where it says that Moshe Rabbeinu made it dark, that he stretched his hand and it became very dark. So Rashi asks a question. Why did God bring upon the Jewish people darkness? I'm sorry, upon the Egyptians. What's the reason for this plague? Rashi explains almost, I'm not sure by every plague, or by almost by every plague, by lots of the plagues, Rashi explains what was the reason for that particular plague. So over here Rashi asks, what's the reason for the darkness? So Rashi answers two answers, I'm, I'm skipping the first one. And this is the second reason. The Jewish people searched. They did some kind of a bedikas chametz. You know, they walked around the home searching, and they looked at their at their kleim, at their at their kalim, at their at their at their, at their uh, you know storages, whatever they held. And then when they when they went out, and then they asked them, and, they, and the Egyptian says, "We don't have." What are you talking about? You don't have. I saw it in your own house. And this and that in that place. So Rashi seems to be telling us exactly what the Medrash says, that the Jewish people, uh, were the, 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 the reason for the Choshech was that, so that we can actually access all the treasures of Egypt, all the values, all the valuables of Egypt. Fine. That's what Rashi says. When we, now, again, there are Mepharshim that learn that Rashi kind of is, is, is basing, this is the Medrash. The problem why we, we cannot say that is for two reasons. The Medrash says clearly that the meaning of the word that to the Jewish people it was light in their settlements, the Medrash learns that that light is referring to specific the light that went along with the Jewish people when they entered into the Egyptians' home. The light that came in the midst of the darkness. That's how the Medrash is learning. And the Medrash is learning that's the purish of the Pasuk. That's the meaning of the words. Rashi can't say that. The reason why we can't say that, Rashi can't say that, is because, first of all, that's not Pshute Shel Mikra. Rashi always stays and sticks to the simple interpretation of a Pasuk. The words to all the Jewish people, there was light in their settlements. How would you learn it if you never learned Rashi or you didn't learn anything? You're hearing someone 
reading the Chumash in Hebrew, translating in English. To all the Jewish people, there was light in their settlements. What does that mean? It means where the Jewish people live. Settlements on the simple level means where the Jewish people live. And if Rashi is to be learning like the Medrash, that Orbe Meshvaisam doesn't mean the places where the Jewish people lived, but it means that there was light accompanying them when they went into the homes of the Egyptians, Rashi should have at least had to make that explanation comment. Rashi should have at least commented when he's bringing those words, Rashi should have commented that what does Moshvoisam over here mean? Not the regular meaning in their homes, but in the places wherever they went, they had light. By the fact that Rashi omits and he doesn't say anything in that pasuk, you, we can, we, that seems to imply that Rashi did, didn't learn this way. That Rashi does not understand meaning that there is a, a that the meaning of means, means that there was light accompanying the Jewish people when they came into the uh, when they came into the house of the Egyptians. The other thing is, another proof to that is, Rashi is 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 telling you that see according to the Medrash, according to this Medrash interpretation, the light the light that accompanied the Jewish people when they were going into the homes of the Egyptians was a special, was a special light. There was a special light that came along with the Jewish people when they were going into the homes of the Egyptians. There was a special, a spe, a special, a special oil. They didn't have that light, and now when they're walking through the homes of the Egyptians, so here, the, 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 the light came to them. But from Rashi, it seems to be saying, no, the whole purpose of the darkness of Choshech, according to the according to Rashi, Rashi learns that the Rashi says this whole thing that the that the that the that the Jews were able to walk through the Egyptians' homes and inspect the homes as a reason for Makas Choshech. That this is the reason why there was Makas Choshech, which means that it seems like from Rashi that this is not an added thing that was added on in addition to the Makkah. This is the Makkah itself. The purpose of the Makkah was to make it dark for the Egyptians. So that the Jewish people can, can see what's, what's going on in the homes. The Medrash is learning that there is kind of two separate things that were happening here. Two, two, two miracles. Two separate things that were taking place. Miracle number one, that it became dark. To, the darkness is a miracle. The, the darkness was a divine plague. God made it dark for the Egyptians. The Medrash is also saying there is a second thing that, went, that took place, that went down. And what is that? There was a miraculous light that went along with the Jewish people wherever they went. So there's two separate things that are happening. From Rashi doesn't seem to be saying that. He's saying only one thing. He's saying that it was dark for the Egyptians, so it enabled the Jewish people to walk around and to see. But, so, but what would be Rashi's... But, but if there's no special light, how can they see? So the, but, so, so the explanation we have to say is as follows, according... In other words, there is a great fundamental um, a, a difference between the way Rashi's learning Makas Choshech and the and the and the miracle of the light, and the way and the way um, the Medrash is learning it. See, the Medrash is learning it. The Medrash's um, um, understanding of what was going on over here is that the Abishter performed two separate things. He made it dark for the Egyptians, and in additionally to that, there was a miraculous light. Wherever a Jew went, light, a spiritual God, not spiritual, a, a light, a blast of light went along with the Jewish people wherever they went. 
Rashi's understanding, and that's the meaning of Lechol B'nei Yisrael Oya Or B'Mashvaisam. It's part. Lechol B'nei Yisrael Oya Or B'Mashvaisam. To all the Jewish people, it was light in there. And it's part of, according to the Medrash, it's part of Makas Choyshech. Makas Choyshech had two, two sides to it. Darkness to the Egyptians, miraculous darkness, and miraculous light to the Jewish people. According to Rashi, the Makas Choyshech entails only one thing. Darkness to the Egyptians. Nothing else. What does the Pasuk then say? It was light. According to Rashi, what's the simple meaning of the Pasuk? As we said earlier. Light in there means that the Makkah, Makas Choshech, did not affect in any way the Jewish communities and their homes. That means similar. Let me explain that a little. That means like this. When the Anderster is giving any, any of the Makas, when he gives Makas uh, Barad, the hail. So we know the hail came down in Egypt, but the hail did not come down in the Jewish neighborhoods. So the Jewish neighborhood was, in other words, we can take Mitzrayim and say there is a couple of zones of Mitzrayim. There's zone A, B, C, D, E, and F. The Jews lived in zone A, okay? And, and Goshen actually was the finest of the land, okay? So the Jews lived in Goshen, zone A. So when, when all the Makas happened, the Makas happened in zone B, C, D, and E, and F, and it did not happen in zone A. <coughs> so that's the meaning of according to Rashi, is that there was light in the Jewish neighborhoods over there, and that's not part of the Makkah. That's where the Makkah did not happen. The Makkah did not happen in the Jewish neighborhoods. Now there was something else. Rashi's telling you. Why did God bring darkness on the Mitzvah? It's to enable the Jewish people to go inside their homes and to look. What does that mean? But how can they look if there's no special light? The answer is, the Makkah itself, the Makkah's Choshech, did not affect the Jewish people that were walking into their homes. That means the darkness that was on the Egyptian place was only darkening for the Egyptians. The Jewish people were not, were not subject to, dark, to, to that darkness. They didn't have a special miracle light that went along with them. The light l'chatchila, I'm sorry, the darkness l'chatchila is not in any way uh, affecting them. So what are the Jewish people experiencing? They're experiencing actually regular daylight. In other words, according, according to the Medrash, if a Jew would walk in at 12 o'clock at night during those weeks of Makas Choshech, or if a Jew would walk in at 12 o'clock midnight to a house of an Egyptian where it's dark, and it's anyways dark because it's night, he still would see everything. Why would he see everything? Because there's a special miracle light that went along with him. According to Rashi, no, there was no miracle pertaining to the Jewish people and their light. According to Rashi, it's the, Jew as a, the Jewish people are not impacted by the darkness even when they're walking into the dark neighborhoods of Egypt. Of Egypt. But it's not a special light. It's just regular. So if it's daylight, they saw. And if it's night, they didn't see. So you have to say, according to Rashi, that when they inspected, whatever they looked, it was during the day. In other words, the Jewish people had a natural, a natural light which enabled them to see. But that's not the meaning of a hoya or bimashvaisam. Bimashvaisam, there was light in their, in their, in their, in their, um, in their settlements. Is coming to tell us that. From the very, very onset, this Makkah is only directed towards the Egyptian neighborhoods. It's not directed towards the Jewish neighborhoods, number one. Number two, Rashi's telling you, the whole purpose of the Makkah that happened, of the plague, that happened to the Egyptians in the Egyptian neighborhood is so that the Jewish people should be able to see what, what is hiding. And for that reason, it didn't, obviously, I have to say, 
there's no, how, do, how do we know that there was no darkness to the Jewish people? We don't have a Pasuk for that. We don't need a Pasuk. Because if the whole purpose of the darkness was so that it can darken for the Egyptians so the Jewish people should be able to see, we don't need a verse to tell that. Because that's self-understood in the, intrin- in the essential understanding of what the Makkah is all about. We understand that the Jewish people did not. It's interesting, Rabbeinu Bahaya, for instance, learns that way also. Rabbeinu Bahaya says that the reason it was light for the Jews, hear these words. Um, hold on. Uh, He uses the term, hold on. Uh, I have to find it. He says to the, oh, Vahaya early Israel, it was light to the Jewish people, but Meshaloi Nizgerulahem, it did not close for them. Shvile Ha'oir, the pathways of light did not shut for them. So it's, I don't know, so how is he exactly, is it something that affected their eyes? Or is there actual a darkness? The Pasuk seems to be talking about a darkness. But yet, again, what we're trying to say is that the, the, you don't need a special miracle light for the Jewish people. It just naturally never got dark for them where they walked. Where they came pertaining to them. But to the Egyptians it was dark. Based on this essential difference, we'll also understand and we'll notice some interesting differences in the wording of Rashi versus the wording of the Medrash. And Rashi said, look at the Medrash, the Medrash that I quoted before, before says that um, they went inside, Barrett's going, eh? Makam So and again, in addition to the, how do we translate the Pasuk, does it mean in the land of Goshen, or does it mean everywhere the Jewish people went? That's one difference between Rashi and the Medrash. The second difference between Rashi and the Medrash is, is there a special double miracle, or is there only one miracle? The miracle is only darkness. It's just a darkness that didn't affect the Jewish people. But according to the Medrash, it's two miracles. But now let's take a look and see the wording of the Medrash, and we'll see why Rashi and Medrash, you see the words are so precise. You see, Medrash says, a light went in, the light was shining to him. And how far was the light shining for him? It, it illuminated that which is in the, in the, in the uh, chavis, is like a, a, uh, a barrel, and that which is in the, uh, the uh, drawers, or in the uh, closed, uh, and that which is hidden. Okay, that's the medrash. Fine. If you take a look at Rashi, Rashi changes. Rashi doesn't say the word umeir lahem. Rashi says shechipsu Yisrael. The Jewish people searched. The medrash doesn't even say they searched. It says the Jewish people entered. Why? Because according to the medrash, there is a light that's blasting. Wherever there was something there, there was a light, a miracle light that was shining upon that, that, that object so they can see it. According to Rashi, the Jewish people needed to search. It was a natural light. They needed to search. Rashi doesn't say the words in the Medrash, the, the, the umare, there was a light that was shining. The light, wasn't, the, shine, the light wasn't showing them anything. They had to search. And another thing is, Rashi doesn't mention anything about finding the lost stuff that were hidden in the ground or hidden in, in safes or in barrels. Rashi doesn't say that. And we can self-understand, we can understand why. 
because if these, if these barrels were locked, if these safes were closed, or if these treasures were beneath the ground, there was no way the Jewish people can get to them, even if they're allowed access into their homes, even if they can't see that. But according to the Medrash, there is a special light that was shining, and as I said earlier, it was an X-ray light. It was, a, it was a laser beam kind of a light that blasted through the darkness and gave them the ability to be able to see even that which was covered. So according to Rashi, we don't have that. It's a midrashic element, but not according to Rashi. One more interesting difference will come out between the two, and that is Rashi says that this, um, um, this, this, this uh, uh, treasure hunt is actually the reason for Makas Choshech. The cause of one of the reasons for Makas Choshech was this treasure hunt, to find the treasures. The Medrash doesn't say that. The Medrash just says, speaks about a miracle that happened, but the Medrash doesn't give it a reason for Makas Choshech. Based on what we can say, uh, uh, what we just said, we can understand why the Medrash doesn't say it as a reason. You see, according to the Medrash, um, if there was a miracle light accompanying the Jewish people, it isn't necessary, so it's not a must that the Egyptians should be in the dark. You see, if you're having a miracle light already, God could have provided them that if they walk outside on the street, they can also see what's happening in the homes. Especially the arm of Farshim in the Medrash, an interesting thing, the arm of Farshim in the Medrash who say that the light that we're talking about was a form of Ruach HaKodesh. It was a form of spiritual light that like, you know, tzaddikim have, that they can see what someone did or what, where something is without... So it's not a physical see, it's like a form of a prophecy. That the Jewish people had some kind of a prophecy. Obviously understanding that, you don't have to walk into the houses of the Egyptians to see that. But even if you're going to say it was a physical blast of light, the Egyptians could have remained in the light. They didn't have to have darkness. The Egyptians could have remained, there could have been light inside their homes. And yet, there is this special, powerful light that is illuminating for the Jewish people. They can see everything that's hidden in the walls or they have like this, 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 this vision, see-through vision. Everything is transparent. Suddenly they can see everything that's going on. Right? So you don't, so according to the Medrash, there's a miracle light. You can't explain a reason for Makas Choshech is so that Jewish people should find the treasures. But according to Rashi, that there is no special miracle of, of special light. The only way the Jewish people would know where the Egyptians hid their treasures was only if God shut down the lights and made it dark so that the Jewish people can trespass into their, into their properties, into their homes, and snoop around all over and see what's going on, and then they can know what it is. That's the difference, that's the argument that we can see. If we pay careful attention, we see that Rashi and the Midrash are of two different opinions. Now, let's try to understand, but what's the deeper reason? Why is Rashi not happy with the Midrashic explanation? In other words, why did Rashi kind of um, learn his own pshat that there was no miraculous light and, 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 and learn there was light in their settlements to mean the settlement to the Jewish people back home. Why didn't he accept the Pirish of the Medrash? And more than that, Rashi could have at least brought the Pirish of the Medrash as a second Pirish. But he doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't say at all, doesn't speak at all about this miraculous light. So the explanation is because we know there's an interesting idea. And that is that when you're doing a mitzvah, it's very, very, very important to do a mitzvah in a natural way. You're not supposed to use miracles in the performance of a mitzvah. 
You know, sometimes we feel that because we're doing the right thing in this world, we expect miracles to happen. And when we have certain hardships, we get frustrated and we're saying, God, I'm trying to do this thing for you. Why could you make me have a miracle? And the answer is God on purpose wants you to do the mitzvah in a natural way and not through a miracle. It's actually a question of how much you can use maisenisim. The Gemara talks about the Mesechtas Menachis that um, one time they needed, they needed I think, uh, barley for the special mincha and clouds came and brought them the barley. And Toysavis asks the question, you're not supposed to have benefit from maisenisim, from, from miracles. And the, 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 the cloud came and dropped them the barley. The barley, instead of growing from the ground, but in general, when we say we're not supposed to do a mitzvah through a miracle, it means in two things. The object in which you do a mitzvah should not be a miraculous object. People have the question, actually, on Hanukkah, when the Jewish people lit the menorah with the oil, there's a problem, because the oil that, uh, that they were lighting the menorah with was miraculous oil. And therefore, there are those who want to say that the, the oil itself never increased, it's just that the potency of the oil just became stronger, that it burnt longer. So what the burnt was only natural oil, not miraculous oil. It's just, whatever, there's a long discussion about it. But that's a general theme and an idea. You're not supposed to do a mitzvah through a miracle. Both, as I mentioned, the object of the mitzvah is supposed to be a natural object. And also, the manner in which the person does the mitzvah is supposed to be through nature, as much as we can, we're supposed to stick to the natural order in order to, sometimes it's impossible and God performed the miracle for the Jewish people that they can do a mitzvah in, an, in, a, in, a, in a supernatural way. But generally, it's not, a, it's not a quality, it's not something we should be looking forward to, it's not something we should be excited about because the service that the Abishta wants us to do should be, wants it to be natural. And I mentioned the story more than once, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, we celebrated last, uh, uh, last week his yard site, this Matzah Shabbos. I actually told this story uh, during the Malava Malka that we had. It's a beautiful story, but it's a very deep story. During the time when the Alter Rebbe, Rishnir Zalman of Liadi, was arrested and he was in, he, he was, he was in, a, in, a, in, a, in a fortress, they held him in a very, very extreme prison. And it was on a, it's like on an island. And in order to take him for interrogations, they ferried him across a river. One time, as they were ferrying him across, it was an opportunity to do Kiddush Levana. Uh, it must have been in the month of Kislev or the month of Cheshvan. They ferried him across because that's when he was in jail. And uh, he, he saw the new moon and he wanted to do Kiddush Levana. But everybody knows you don't stand up on a boat. In Kiddush Levana you're supposed to do standing. So the Rebbe asked the, um, the, uh, the guy who was ferrying the boat, uh, looks like it had some kind of a motor, some kind of an engine, I don't know. Back then, about 300 years ago, I don't know exactly what it was, but he asked the uh, guy uh, ferrying him across uh, that he should stop the boat because he needs just for a few minutes because he wants to say a prayer. And the, and the guy ignored him. The prisoner, why should he listen to him? So he ignored him. So the Rebbe just stopped the boat on his own. Basically, the guy couldn't move. Whether he was pedaling, the boat just remained <laughs> exactly where it was. The motor, if the motor just conked out, I don't know what kind of boat it was, but whatever it is, the boat stopped and it wasn't going anywhere. When the guy saw that if the Rebbe doesn't want to go, He's not going to, no matter what he tries, it's not going to happen. So um, <coughs> he turned to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe kind of uh, let, allowed it, the boat to start. And the boat started, they continued, and three minutes later, the Rebbe turns to him, uh, and he said to him, um, can you please stop the boat? I want to say a prayer. So now, usually the story is, that I always heard the story, is that the guy stopped the boat. 
the guy uh, stopped the boat because he basically realized that he can't, uh, can't, he can't mess around with him. But I actually saw a little part of the story that I'd never seen before, that he asked the Rebbe, what are you going to give me for it? And the Rebbe took out, he asked him for a little piece of paper and a pen or a quill or something, and he wrote for him a blessing. He wrote him a blessing with his ksavyad, with his handwritten writing, and he gave him this blessing. And the guy obviously understood that a blessing from this person would be very, very powerful. So he stopped the boat, the Rebbe said, Kiddush Lavana. So many years later, the grandson of this uh, officer, this uh, boat captain, um, met one of the chassidim, and he said, I want to show you that note that my grandfather got. His, he kept it in a, in a closed glass, um, uh, like, a, I don't know what it's called, in, in, um, uh, what do they call it when they're museums? They have a display. He had a glass display in his house, and inside he had it on a gold dish, or some kind of a gold something, and on that he kept that parchment. And he said, my grandfather had unbelievable success after he got that blessing. So he kept that, that, that thing. But in any case, the question is asked, if the Rebbe stopped the boat already and the boat wasn't going anywhere, he should have stood up and started doing Kiddush Levana. But he didn't do that. He allowed the boat to continue. Then he asked the captain to stop the boat. The captain stopped the boat, and then the Rebbe said Kiddush Levana. So Chassidim asked the question, what's the reason why he did that? He had the boat stopped already. And the answer is, since he was going to perform a mitzvah, and a mitzvah you're supposed to do in a natural way, since when he stopped the boat, he used supernatural godly powers, because he was a tzaddik, he was able to, he was able to uh, suppress nature, he was able to override nature, he was able to like, manipulate the code, go into a little computer, and play around with the, with the, with the, with the codes that, 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 that enable the nature you know, and movement and whatever it is and create some kind of a block. So that's what he was able to do. A Rebbe is able to do that. But that's not the way you should do a mitzvah. So therefore he asked him to stop. Once he stopped it, he was able to do his Kiddush Levana so he can do the mitzvah in a natural way. Which, by the way, from here you see, not only are you supposed to do the mitzvah itself naturally, but even the preparation for the mitzvah is also supposed to be done in a natural way. Because in this case, this wasn't the mitzvah. Stopping the boat is not the mitzvah. Stopping the boat is an introduction to the mitzvah. What's the mitzvah? The mitzvah is that he can get up and say the special blessing for the moon, right? That special blessing to do Kiddush Levana. So that's the mitzvah. Here we're not dealing, he, was, he wasn't going to do the mitzvah with some miraculous power. He was going to do the mitzvah regularly with his, with, his, with his power of speech that's natural from his body. But the introduction to the mitzvah, the preparation for the mitzvah, also should be done in a natural way. We once discussed this, that by Avram Avinu, that's the reason why Hashem did not come to heal Avram Avinu after his bris milah, after his circumcision for three days. Hashem only sent him a malach, even though Avram was in agony. And, and the answer we gave, we spoke about this a couple of years ago, is just like we're supposed to do a mitzvah itself in a natural way, we're supposed to allow a mitzvah also for nature to run its course. That means after a mitzvah is done, we're supposed to allow the consequences of the natural world to, to even though, it's amazing, because even though a mitzvah means you're getting the divine engaged, you're engaging God, you're engaging something infinitely higher than creation, but the main point over here is that holiness and godliness should permeate the physical, and within the physical itself, the physical in its natural state, what's the physical in it? When it's running, when it's, when it's operating, in a natural way. So that's the reason we should be doing the nature. This will give explanation to the reason why Rashi, 
who was so hesitant in saying that we had a special light accompanying the Jewish people. You see, this, this, um, this activity of rummaging through the Egyptian homes in order to, and snooping around in order to see what could possibly, what we can possibly take was a commandment. God commanded the Jewish people that they should borrow from their Egyptian friends and neighbors whatever they have. Since it's a mitzvah, and a mitzvah you're supposed to do without interfering with nature. So that's why Rashi is reluctant to say, if the light would have been a miraculous light, that means that the manner in which, even though it's not the mitzvah itself, the mitzvah is to actually walk over to your neighbor and say, can I please borrow your, you know, your suit? Can I have your dress? Can I have your... That was the mitzvah. Y'all can have your Rolex watch. That was the mitzvah. But how were they... But the preparation for the mitzvah, the enabler to do the mitzvah, was the fact that they were able to see what's happening, where the stuff are. It was an absolute necessity in order to be able to do the mitzvah. If that would have been accomplished through a miracle, there would have been some kind of an interference in the natural observance of the commandment. And that's the reason it didn't happen. Now, even though one can argue and one can say, well, what are you talking about? That we tried to keep it natural. The whole Makas Choyshech was an abnormal miracle. The whole thing, especially if we're saying like Rashi learns, that the whole point of Makas Choyshech was God intervening with nature so that, they can, so that they can fulfill this mitzvah. So obviously it is a miracle. What are we saying? The answer is like this. We have to differentiate. What God was only doing was a prevention to stop the Egyptians from interfering with the Jewish mitzvah. But the actual preparation that the Jewish people did, they did it naturally. When they looked, when they searched, they searched with natural light and with their natural vision. So the introduction to the mitzvah was done naturally. It was only that what? That there was a cause that was done earlier to enable this later thing to happen. And that's not called intervening in the mitzvah. And the proof to that is, let's go back to the story with the, with the ship, with the boat. With the, with, the, with the ferry boat where the Rebbe stops the boat. There too, the only reason the guy stopped it the second time was because the Rebbe twisted his arm and showed him that if he doesn't listen, he can do it, he can do it supernaturally. He can do it through a miracle. Yet, yet that's not a problem. Because that was what we call, it's just a cause. It's a cause. But the actual performance of the Kiddush Levana was done through a natural means of him asking him, please stop the boat. And he stopped the boat naturally because he asked him, and that's how he was able to do Kiddush Levana. So the same as over here. They walked through the homes of the Egyptians with, with natural light, and scanned and, and took stock of everything that was there on, with natural circumstance. If so, we ask the question, why was the Midrash not bothered by this? Now we'll flip the question to the other side. If Rashi is, is so persistent, that what? That we don't want the mitzvah to be done in a miraculous way, why is the Midrash um, comfortable with saying that there was a special blast light that was, that was a miracle light that enabled them to do the mitzvah? So for that we can answer very, very gishmak, two answers. Number one, this idea that mitzvahs are supposed to be done in a natural manner is primarily from the giving of the Torah and onward. We've discussed this many, many times that the difference between pre-Torah and post-giving of the Torah is that before the giving of the Torah, we did not have the ability and the power to sanctify the natural physical world. Even when Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov did mitzvahs, they did mitzvahs. Their mitzvah did not bring any kedusha in the physical object through which they did the mitzvah. Avram Avinu did 
wore tzitzis, some kind of a tzitzis he wore, because he did all the tzitzis, he fulfilled all the commandments, but there was no physical holiness to his tzitzis, his talis. Again, he might have not even worn a physical talis. It says Yaakov Avinu um, fulfilled the mitzvah of tefillin when he was peeling the sticks by Lavan's house. The peeled sticks was like the tefillin um, in order to make them, make the animals uh, 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 multiply exactly the spot. And this, it says Yaakov was doing the mystical unions that are done through tefillin. Yaakov accomplished it. There is no holiness with those sticks. You are abs- If you find those sticks, you can take them into a bathroom, you, you, which you could not do to, to, to holy tefillin. Because today's days, holiness permeates a physical object. We take physicality and make it godly. They did not have the ability to do that because God had made, when he, Hashem created the world, it says Hashem created a border and a divide between the holy and the unholy, between the spiritual and the physical. The upper realms were able to be receptive of godly light the lower realms are dense, dark, and are, are impenetrable until the giving of the Torah. So that's why we, and even though you might ask, hold it, but didn't I say earlier the mitzvah of bris milah that Avram Avinu did, we said, was a mitzvah that, yeah, it's the only mitzvah taka that did bring holiness into the physical object. It, that's true, but it says that's the one mitzvah that our forefathers did to act as an introduction and an empowerment for our post-Matan Torah mitzvahs. Only the mitzvah of Milah. Every other mitzvah was done in the spiritual. That's an exception. According to that, we can understand that now when the Jewish people had a mitzvah to run around Egypt and to borrow all the gold and the silver, this mitzvah doesn't have the same requirements that it must be done in a physical way because it's a pre-Matan Torah mitzvah. So it's, we don't care so much about... See, let me explain something. The reason why we want to do something in a natural order is because that's part of the idea that we want to sanctify something that's low. The whole point is of Torah and mitzvahs is the Abishta gave the Torah and the mitzvahs to this lowly world so that we can take the physical material and coarsest materials of this world and refine them, elevate them, and sanctify them. Part of that is, is that you have to work with the natural order of the way the physical operates. Only then are you penetrating and permeating the, phys- the physical. It's not just the physical object. It's the physical nature. That's why the mitzvah must be done within that natural order. But since before Matan Torah, we anyways, before the giving of the Torah, we anyways didn't have the power to sanctify the material physical world. So it doesn't make a difference if you do it in a natural way, you do it in a non-natural way. That's one explanation. Another explanation is, this mitzvah, of, of going around Egypt and taking their, their and, 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 and asking for the gold and the silver is not really so much a mitzvah. It's not one of the ways we the Jewish people worship and serve our creator. It's actually the opposite. It's a reward. Our creator is work is rewarding us for, for our hardship, for our hard times. This was a reward. This was not a mitzvah. Reward is on God's terms. Because when God is doing something, God can do things completely abnormal. He can do things on a godly scale. What's the godly scale? It's the miracle realm. This mitzvah, technically Hashem told the Jewish people to do it, but the content of it is not a mitzvah. What's a mitzvah? A mitzvah is a commandment that the Eberster is giving us, one of the commandments in which we serve Him. We serve Him as a servant, 613 commandments. And what's the content of that service? We make this world into a home for Him. We're preparing a palace. We're making this world. That means we're sublimating nature and the physical. This mitzvah is not about sublimating nature. 
This mitzvah is a special mitzvah of reward to the Jewish people for the work they did already. Since it's a reward, over here, in addition to what we said before, it's before the giving of the Torah, in addition to that, it's not even a mitzvah. Even though at that moment there was a mitzvah, but it's not a mitzvah, it's mainly a reward. To take that even further, you see that the way we did this mitzvah, even though technically we needed to ask the Egyptians, but these Egyptians were our, were our arch enemies. They hated the Jewish people, especially now. After the plagues, you can imagine we destroyed Egypt completely. Egypt was the most powerful, prosperous nation. And, Israel, and, and Egypt was now literally on the brink of complete dis- destruction. So you can imagine what kind of hatred the Egyptians had to the Jewish people. Why in the world did the, Jew, did, the, did the Egyptians go and give the Jewish people all their possessions, all their gold and silver? If you think about it, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd, especially when you put, you put yourself into the shoes. Even if you imagine, imagine walking to your Egyptian neighbor, imagine going over to Nazis and asking them for their, for their, for their uh, things. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So what, what happened? It was all, it was a heavenly thing. Hashem played with their hearts. Suddenly Hashem turned their hearts into jello, and they suddenly felt tremendous admiration. And Basik says, the, the Jewish people had such unbelievable charm, and they couldn't resist, they gave him everything. So you see that this is anyways not a thing that we did. God is doing it. If God is doing, it's not required so much to work through the channels of nature. Fine. So that's the explanation. But now we can really take this to a much deeper level. Let's go back to Rashi. We're going back and forth. Let's go back to Rashi. On a deeper level, we can say like this. We're t- according to Rashi, as I mentioned earlier, um, the, when, when it says in the Pasuk, for all the Jewish people there was light in, in, uh, in their settlements, the light that was in the settlements is unrelated to the plague. But the Pasuk is saying the plague is in zone B, C, D, E, and F. Zone A is not affected by the plague. So it's unrelated to the plague. Now, the plague itself was for the sake for the Jewish people to go and look for the thing. So Rashi's really, what Rashi is really saying is that the, when the Pasuk speaks about light and the Makkah of Choshech are two separate things that are not, they're not, they're not connected to each other. According to the Medrash, the light and the darkness are part of one Makkah. It's part of the plague. Miracle darkness for the Egyptians and miraculous light for the Jewish people. What does that mean? How does that translate? So there's an amazing thing. That translates really into, into the way we, we, we as Jews um, observe and live our lives as Jews. You see, as a Jew, we have two, we have two primary um, obje- uh, um, what we say tasks in our lives. We have one task and one element of our life to live a Jewish life. Living a Jewish life means studying Torah, praying, and doing mitzvahs. That's our living our Jewish life. And where do we live our Jewish life primarily? In our neighborhoods, in our Jewish homes. That's where we have our shuls, that's where we have our gatherings, that's where we do communal events of, of mitzvahs. We're ba- we learn together, we celebrate together, we pray together. That's all our Jewish experience. We might call that our more spiritual side, our religious side. But then there's another aspect to our lives. 
The other aspect of our life is, as a Jew, we are responsible for the world. Our job is to rectify, elevate, and sublimate the, the outside, the borders of the Jewish world, the Gentile world as well. Everything in the world needs to be touched by a Jew in order for it to be elevated. Touched, I don't mean just physically touching it. When a Jew, and we learned this, this is a concept, a, a spiritual concept, a Kabbalistic idea, but fundamental, fundamental, fundamental to the understanding of what it means to live a life as a Jew and what we the Jewish people are doing in this world. This is the idea of the Arizal, where the Holy Ari tells us there are sparks of holiness that were scattered across the entire world. These, these sparks of holiness um, are trapped. They, they're, they're in exile. These are pieces of God, so to speak, that are prisoner in, 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 in all over the world and entities that are blocking and separating them from their connection to their source and they're in pain and they're in agony and they sit there for thousands of years waiting to be redeemed and we the Jewish people are the liberators of those sparks. How do we liberate those sparks? So it's primarily through mitzvahs, not through, so much through Torah study. Torah study is more of an exercise that you do in your mind. It's, it doesn't involve the physical part of the world that much. Torah study is more of an exercise of your neshama, of your soul, not so much of your body. Same as also prayer. Prayer is an experience of the heart. You should love God with all your heart. That's taking place inside of you, in the holy. That's taking place in the holy sphere, in the inner realm of the Jew, in the godly part side of the Jew. In that godly place, you're channeling God's light. You're elevating your soul for a deep oneness, for a deep connection with the Abishter, with Hashem. That's Torah and that's tefillah. When you're doing mitzvahs, mitzvahs are already, every mitzvah involves a physical object. Your physical body, a physical object. Whether you're eating uh, matzah, which is made up of flour, for crackers, wool, for tzitzis, parchment, for a sefer Torah, or anything else, physical dollars and money for tzedakah and the like. These are all things in which we take mundane elements of the world which all contains these sparks of holy. And we have to use every currency. We have to use Canadian money and American money and Australian money and we have to use Italian money and French money and the euros. We have to use every type. We have to use pesos. We have to use every type of currency. We have to speak every language. We have to use, because and that's the whole idea the Jewish people scatter the diaspora in every part of the world so we can reach every nook and cranny of creation and refine it and elevate it that only God knows when we've reached every little part and parcel of the world. So it's through mitzvahs, but not just through mitzvahs. It's also through what we call all the regular mundane activity that we do most of our day. That's not mitzvah. We're working for a living. We're, in, we're, 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 we're shopping for our home. We're cleaning. We're doing. We're laundering. Whatever it is that we're doing. All we're exercising. Whatever stuff we do. All those physical things, as long as we do them as a Jew, with a holy purpose, with a holy intention in mind that's called we're elevating chunks and chunks and chunks of the world so now we can understand that's the that's these two parts in according to Rashi you see when the Jewish people went into the homes of the Egyptians to look for the for for their hidden jewelry what really is the deeper meaning of that it's not that you were just taking their physical their physical jewels, their physical money. The Arizal says that embedded in these jewelry and these silver and in these gold ornaments and in these clothing and all the wealth of Mitzrayim are these sparks of holiness. 
So, uh, so th that's what it is. And for that, the Jewish people, and that's the meaning that we entered into, into the choshech, into the darkness. Because the world is a world of darkness. And that's our job, to enter into the dark Egyptian world. And the dark Egyptian world means Wilshire Boulevard. It means, it means everything. All, all the, all, <coughs> everything material, physical <coughs> of the world in which you don't have a display of direct kedusha and holiness. It's part of the dark world. And our job is to seek and look for those sparks. In addition to that, we have something else. Then we go home after a long day of work, come to the house, hopefully we go to shul, we daven mincha, we daven mairev, we go to a shir, we study, we learn, we daven, we connect ourselves. So Rashi is saying these are two separate services. One of them is l'chol b'nei Yisrael or When is it light? When is it light? Light the Shabbos Kodesh. Shabbos, you're sitting around with your family, you're speaking words of Torah. The world kind of came to the end. The hustle and bustle of mundane activity kind of just disappeared. And you're living just in a world of holiness. When you're davening, when you're learning, when there's this godly world, that's light. That's called moish voisam. That's called your settlements. And then there's something else. There is your treasure hunting. We as Jews, throughout the exile, are treasure hunting. So Rashi says, you should know, according to the simple meaning, not getting too deep, According to Pshutish Mikra, it seems, <coughs> according to Rashi, who always goes with the simple meaning, these are two separate, separate activities, which are not, they're two separate things, they're, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're, they're not connected to each other. You have your time when you're doing mitzvahs and you're full of light, and then there's the time that you're putting on your mining, your mining boots, and your goggles, and your mining clothing, and you're going deep, 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 underground into the mines to mine for to mine for gold two separate things that's according to rashi medrash which medrash we know is a little bit related more to the secrets of the torah it says that in the midrashim all the all the secrets of the zohar and the mystical secrets are really contained in the midrashic teachings that's what it says in the hilchas talmud torah from shneir zalman of liadi he says that in the midrashis is hidden all the secrets so Medrash that's approaching Judaism from a more deeper place, the Medrash is revealing a deep secret. The Medrash is saying like this, there's no two separate things in your life. You're davening and you're learning. When you're davening, you're your light in your davening and your learning must also impact your treasure hunt. Because we, if, if all we would be, if all we would be required was, is to bask in God's light, by studying God's Torah and doing a mitz and, 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 and engaging in deep, fervent uh, 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 spiritual prayer, if all that would be, then why does Hashem have to send our neshama to do that in a body? He could have left our neshama to do that in heaven. He says in Tanya, an amazing thing, he says the only reason, from the Arizal, this is, is actually in Eitz Chaim, from the Arizal, you can look it up, I don't have the source right now, but the Arizal says an amazing thing. He says the neshama did not come down into this world to rectify itself. A soul does not need a tikkun. Every neshama is perfect. The neshama is a piece of God. The neshama came down into the world only for one reason, to rectify the animal soul and our bodies and our portion in this world. That's what we came down to rectify. So even when we have those portions of our life, those moments of transcendence, those moments of deep spiritual communion and connection to God, we have to realize the Medrash is saying, that that light of Ahoya Oyer is the same light that you use to find the treasures. What does that mean? Your inspiration you get from prayer. Your inspiration you get from your learning 
has to serve as a general guidance that when you step out of, of, of the world of holiness, you take that extra powerful spiritual lights that your soul just experienced, that are transcendental lights, and you use that light to help you in your, in your work of, tra- of, of finding those sparks and elevating those sparks. In other words, you can't say that I'm going to compart- compartmentalize my, myself. I have two selves. I have a holy self, a spiritual self. Now I'm changing. I'm flipping on my, putting on my workday, weekday clothing, and I'm not connecting to my prayer. I'm not connecting to my story. No, that's extra godly, miraculous light. See how it makes perfect sense? Because davening and learning is miraculous light. It's transcendental godly light. It's light of miracles. It's higher than nature. It's very powerful. Use that very light also when you're walking through the corridors of darkness. When you're walking through those dungeons of the dark, dark homes of the Egyptians and you're looking for sparks of holiness, use that very light because there's no two sections in your life. One is when you're connecting to God and one is when you're rectifying the world. The connecting, the whole purpose for Yenishama coming into a body in the first place is to rectify the world. So we have to say that the moments of transcendence need also to be geared towards rectification of the world. That's why the Medrash loops the two together as one. But now, so you think we're done already. But there's something even deeper in Rashi. And with this we'll conclude. According to what we're saying now, Rashi is kind of looking at it superficially a little bit. That you can be, we can look at these two services as two separate things. Medrash is getting a little deeper. But now let's take it back to Rashi and see how Rashi is even deeper. The reason why Rashi says that these two things are two separate things is because Rashi is really speaking about a whole different era. You see, after the neshama, true, the whole purpose of our soul coming down in this world is to labor, to purify, to elevate, to refine the, the coarse materials of the physical world. True, given. And that's the purpose. And through that we make a home for Hashem. But after that's done, after that's done, the neshama gets its ultimate reward. And what is the reward of the neshama? The neshama's reward after everything is done is to, exp- is to experience a powerful, powerful, deep intimacy with Hashem. And the meaning that the end, 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 the soul gets to have a, a, a vacation, so to speak, from its material, physical engagement. And it needs to do so. Until the work is done, we need to engage and follow through in the physical world. But a time will come when a Jew will be able to immerse himself completely in the spiritual realm of Torah and mitzvahs and the like. That's kind of what we say about Yaakov Avinu. I give you, let's, let's, let's. Bikesh Yaakov Leishev B'Shalva. After Yaakov went through Lavan's house, and after Yaakov went through an encounter with Esau, and he wrestled with the dark forces like he wrestles with the king, what does Yaakov want? He wants to sit in peace and tranquility. What, what is, that? is that? Is that not kosher? It is kosher. Not only is it kosher, that's the ultimate ideal. When we're finished rectifying the world, we are going to have a period of pure spiritual delight and tranquility. That's the days of Mashiach. That's the ultimate menucha that's going to come, where we don't have to busy ourselves with the refinement and purification of the world. So Rashi is saying like this, Makas Choyshech is the last... Here's the thing, what's Makas Choyshech? Makas Choyshech was, comes, when, when does Makas Choyshech come? It comes in the end of the exile. 
Because, as we said earlier, when does Makas Choshech, what's going to happen after Makas Choshech? Right after Makas Choshech, we have Makas Pachoris. More than that, what, what does Makas, what's the end, end, end purpose of the exile? What was the purpose of Makas Choshech? To actually grab all the sparks of holiness that were scattered, that we've, it's interesting. I don't know if this is true, but it makes a little sense. It could be it's true, if not, Hashem HaTev Yechaper, what I'm saying. But it could be that it's, it makes sense. That basically, all the sparks of holiness that we've elevated, to a certain degree, it's not like totally elevated. We kind of like loosen it. It's like stuck. We, we, we break it. We like chisel it out from where it's cemented. But those sparks are still waiting for the last moments, like for us. Like we're the, we're the closers. We're that last generation who's like in one second, like right at the end, boom, all those sparks that have been kind of loosened for thousands of years of our work, boom, they're going to be absorbed into the Jewish people, increasing our incredible, and bring tremendous blast of light in the entire world and empowering the Jewish people in an amazing way. But the idea is, Choshech is the last and final activity or the last and final moments of Golos. On the one hand, it's very dark. On the other hand, Dafke in this darkness, you see, I'll, I'll give an interesting example. Today's days, more than in any other time in history, we have access to all the treasures that are buried in all the various different places around the world, sparks of holiness that we never had access to. How do we know that? Take a look. When Jews lived throughout all the years, in the, wherever they lived, you know, they, they were only able to rectify and refine the objects that were close to them. Because there was, today's days, if, if, you're, if you're using a car, you realize that the car is made from parts, from China, from Indonesia, there is, there is, there is, there is uh, 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 screws that come from, uh, I don't know, from, from countries that are like in the middle of really, really, really far out there. And, 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 and also, because of the interglobal, today's, today's ability that we have, our ability to be able to communicate um, through, the, through the modern channels of the internet and the like, we're able to access things across the world instantly. So our ability, we're like, today's days we have the ability, our web, our holy Jewish web, extends around the world more than ever, ever before to grab everything, to grab everything, everything, everything. But, so we have that ability to complete, but here's what we have to know. As we complete this job and we finish elevating momentarily, we will move into, as Rashi says, the next stage. It's a new thing. After we're done that work, we're all going to continue on to Eretz Yisrael to live in pure light, in pure bliss, in pure communication with Hashem. And in that place, there is no darkness. There is no Mitzrayim. There are, in other words, at this point, the only thing that exists is Hashem and the Jewish people. Yisrael and Malka B'chadoi. And you know where we have a similar thing to this? On Sukkot, I'll give you an example. We have on Sukkot, we know we bring animals for the, we bring 70 cows as an offering. 70 cows. And, and we know that on Sukkot, it's because we, our work on Sukkot elevates the entire world. Through these 70 cows, we elevate the 70 nations. But it says on Shemini Atzeres, Hashem says, bring only one cow, one bull. So the Rashi says, and it's like a, a, an example to a king who says, he makes a big party and everybody's there by the party and then the king tells his best friend, wait till everybody leaves, wait till everybody leaves. And when everybody leaves, let's just have a party, me and you, just from the leftovers. That's just, just me and you, no one else is here. It's not gonna be a big thing, but it's just small, but it's intimate, just me and you. 
So basically, that's what we're holding right now. As we complete our work in rectifying the world, Rashi is alluding to the ultimate completion of this work. Now, what is the lesson of all of this to the times that we're in right now? To the times that we're in right now is we have to know as follows. We're living in a very unique time in Jewish history that has never, ever been. And that is that we can see, if you, you can see that the Abishter has been doing such incredible miracles to allow the Jewish people to build themselves up in their communities and build up their Jewishness. Put it this way. In terms of the hostilities, you would think that it's a modern world, and because it's a modern world, that's why we're, we're enjoying all this freedom and all this liberty, because it's a modern world. A hole in my head. Because you can take a look and you can see the anti-Semitism, you can see the violent anti-Semitism. After the Holocaust, after all that, you can see what the UN thinks about the Jewish people. You can see all the animosity and the hatred of the Europeans and of the Muslims and so on and so forth. We remain one sheep among 70 wolves, and that did not change one iota. Yet, if we take a look at the last 50 years or 60 years after the Holocaust, we've had our trials, we've had our tribulations, we had our sufferings, terrorism, this, this, we had wars, and so forth. But in general, there has never been such a golden era where the Abishter has provided for the Jewish people, especially after the fall of communism in 1990, where the Abishter has provided for the Jewish people to be able to wrap it up. God knows we need to wrap it up now. God knows we need to go in and find those hidden treasures that we spoke about. The Egyptians hid them. We've taken everything already from the surface throughout all the generations. But now we have to be like a, bu like a bunker buster. We have to like delve deep into such deep sparks that are hidden in things that we would never think we can make them holy and make them Jewish. It's a unique era. Right now we're ready to finish everything. And what do we see from the Pasuk? God provides special light for us to be able to do that. And we can learn that light on two ways, as we mentioned earlier. One way is that Hashem does miracles. He does miracles. He gives us he, he works things out in the world miraculously so that we can naturally do our work, like Rashi says. Our work of finding the sparks is a natural kind of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an endeavor. But God does miracles to enable us to do that natural work. Or according to the Medrash, even more than that, Hashem assists us with miracles in our ability to be able to pick up those last and final, smallest, or those far-flung things in this world that still need maybe to be picked up. We can pick them up, but we have to realize never in history was there a time of such divine assistance. Even though, on the other hand, it's so dark. Because it's Chayshech, Makas Chayshech. See, it's the paradox. The paradox is that God is doing such miracles, but it's so hidden. We're going to be baffled once Mashiach comes and we're really going to take a look and get an honest look at history. We're going to stand with our mouths open and shocked. We're not going to believe how in the world these unbelievable miracles that God has done for the survival of the Jewish people, especially in the last 70 years, to, to allow us to be comfortable, to allow us to all... Hashem has given the Jewish people prosperity, wealth, prestige, power, and everything for one job and one thing only, to finish the job and to rectify all of the world. May we merit to see the completion of that great and holy work and experience the coming of Mashiach, the true Hoya Oyer, Chobene Yisrael Hoya Oyer, the ultimate light of Mashiach Tzedkenu, where we merit to see it now.
Oh, I'm 